This season of Tub Talk is brought to you by Barracuda MSP. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. There are so many ransomware attacks that governments are now classifying them as terrorism. And it's not just big companies that are being targeted. Small and medium-sized businesses are becoming victims too. What are you as an MSP doing to help your clients from becoming the next victim? Barracuda MSP is here to help you ensure you and your clients are prepared and protected against the inevitable ransomware attacks. Let Barracuda MSP help you strengthen your ransomware protection plan. As a special offer for TubTalk listeners, visit barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. That's barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. Thanks to Barracuda MSP for helping bring you TubTalk. Now, on with the show. Well, hello there, and welcome to episode 100 of Tub Talk, the podcast for IT consultants. I know, 100, right? So this season is focused on the amazing women in tech. And for episode 100, we wanted to invite a very special guest and someone who is a personal tech hero of mine. Now, Maggie Philbin OBE has worked in radio and television for over 30 years on a wide range of science, medical, and technology programs from Tomorrow's World to Bang Goes the Theory. In 2008, Maggie co-founded TeenTech, an award-winning organization which works across the UK, getting young people innovating, creating, building skills, and preparing for a fast-changing future. Teen Tech supports, uh, helps support students, parents, and teachers, helps them understand the real opportunities in contemporary industry. In January 2017, she was awarded an OBE for her work to promote careers in STEM and the creative industries. Maggie is also the patron of the Council for Professors and Heads of Computing and has been awarded 10, yes, 10 honorary degrees and fellowships for her work. In short, Maggie Philbin is a legend, and I am beyond thrilled that she's agreed to be my 100th guest here on this very special edition of Tub Talk. Maggie, Maggie, welcome to the show. Where are you joining us from today? <laughs> um, I, I, well, I, I live in London, so I'm joining you from my sitting room. Wow. Uh, and, and thank you for inviting me to such a special occasion. No, my That's absolute cake. pleasure. Are we having cake? At least a birthday cake. At least a birthday cake. Yes, we will do that. And I never need an excuse for cake, but episode 100, we definitely are going to have cake. Look, we've got we've got an audience from all around the world listening here today. Um, for folks here in the UK, for certain, Maggie, you're a household name through your work, your work on television and radio. Do you mind? I want to talk about tomorrow's world and your other TV work during that conversation, but right off the bat. I want to jump into the work that you do with organizations to find ways of improving diversity in science, technology, and engineering, or the STEM subjects. What drives your passion behind this work? Uh, I think really it is, it, it's a combination of the fact that it wasn't until I started work on Tomorrow's World that I had any sense of the scale of opportunity out there. And also understanding that so many young people simply don't get the access to a network which enables them to really understand what those opportunities are and so the the real driver is you know there is so much potential sitting in classrooms all over the UK and I just want to make sure that those kids know how brilliant they could be and, and really how to seize the opportunity with both hands. 
Yeah, and, and you founded Teen Tech in 2008. Uh, tell us about the work that Teen Tech does. Well, as you sort of say, you know, the aim is to help those young people understand three things, really. Um, we all know it's a really fast changing world and the, the, the world of tech and IT that you came into um, is certainly not the one that it is today. And it is fast changing. So it's impossible for teachers and parents to keep across um, all of that. So finding ways to connect young people to the horse's mouth is, is what we aim to do. So it's helping them understand what's out there. But the next thing is helping them profoundly understand that they would really enjoy working in that space because unless they really feel that it doesn't matter how much you say there's so many opportunities you know um you're not going to want to do it unless you think you're going to enjoy it so you know basically what teen tech does is to give students those opportunities uh, to discover their own potential really so we start very much where the kids are so we don't start with the mission saying we need to get x thousand you know ux designers or whatever we start by saying what are you interested in <laughs> and then no matter what a young person says they're always going to need digital skills at some at some level so we start with their interest whether it's because you know, I mean, one of the things a couple of years ago that came up so often was was they were all wanted to be tattooists. You know, so help <laughs> <laughs> see how the you know a, a digital skills could really help them with that was was quite interesting. Um, but but you know, but seriously, um, you know, we we know that so many kids if if they don't have that moment where they understand that no matter how they are being graded at school, that isn't necessarily the same thing as the personal qualities they could bring to a career in tech. Because as, as you and I know, that you know that's very different. You could get grade A's and still not be the person who's going to be very valuable in a team. Whereas you could be the slightly disruptive, cheeky teenager who actually is going to be that bold, creative thinker who's going to come up with the next massive um, um, product. So uh, it's installing that sense of confidence into kids is, is what we do. Because my um, personal view here, not the official view of Team Tech, is that I think a lot of what happens in education can knock the stuff out of some some students mm. and um i think that's a real pity and also i mean it can knock the stuff out of some students and also out of, out of the teachers themselves because they want to do the best for their students and sometimes the the system doesn't enable them to do that yeah we, we talk about the students i also want to talk about the teachers as well my wife works in uh, schools and so i hear from you know all the highs and all the lows of working in motivating students and helping uh, students grow for me personally i'm not sure i've ever said this publicly but when i started out uh, understanding what computers were i was bought a second-hand atari 600 xl when i was about seven eight years old by my parents but it was really one of my school teachers a chap called mike fisher um uh, who encouraged me uh, we had 
one computer in the school, the school computer. But, you know, when we're going back there and uh, Mr. Fisher saw that I was, you know, um, had a, a, an interest in it and got passionate about it and really encouraged me from there on in, you know, without knowing a great deal about IT himself. So what does, you know, Teen Tech do in, in, in terms of enabling the teachers to have the confidence to enable the pupils to be the best that they can? Yeah, well, you know, what we do with all of the, I mean, at the moment, um, the vast majority of what we're running is happening virtually because of um, COVID, but normally it's a mix of virtual and physical events. And I think one of the things that uh, which is quite key about Team Tech is the the way that we bring in um, industry experts of every which kind. So we can do a really quite an intense um, session, and it might be on you know animation, it might be on website design or whatever. And we're not putting the burden on the teacher to know all of this. We've got the industry experts who are there. Um, so the teacher does what they do best in in terms of the class. And we've got the industry experts supporting with that amazing back catalogue of knowledge that they've got. Um, so if a child asks a question, then there is an expert on hand. You can an answer it. Um, so it is that 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 real, real blend. And so for teachers, I mean, we do you know, CPD events, but in a sense, everything Team Tech does is a CPD event. Um, and and the, the students tend, you know, we, we ask the students to give us areas that they are interested in, which is, you know, that thing about starting where the students actually are, as opposed to where you want them to be. And the suggestions are many and various. Um, and then, you know, we build the sessions. So, you know, I mean, I'm learning. It's not, it's, you know, I don't put myself in a, on a throne thinking, right, here you are, here are some <laughs> kernels of learning. Um, I'm, I'm learning alongside the students and the teachers are learning alongside um, the students. And basically, I, I suppose what Team Tech does is it puts things into, into context. And no curriculum or exam board can really keep pace with the change that we're experiencing at the moment yeah. and so but what we can do is to show how certain aspects of what they might be doing at school you know actually are valuable in the workplace because we, we just show how that learning is being applied yeah. Um, so, yeah, so so the teachers are very, very much um, part of this, uh, you know, what I think is a, a great community of learners, because as you and I know, you, you never stop learning. You know, I learn things all the time. Um, and and that's something as well. I mean, I think that is an important thing for the young people to see, because, I mean, uh, like when I was at school, I think I did look upon the teacher as the fountain of all knowledge because the teacher had the knowledge and the teacher was giving all of that knowledge to you. But the thing is that, you know, things have changed. And, you know, if you, as a teacher, I think they feel slightly, I mean, obviously I shouldn't really speak on behalf of teachers, but, you know, your wife would know, is that... Um, is that if if you put yourself on that pedestal, it can be you can be rocked off it. Whereas if you are 
sort of saying, look, you know, I, I, I want to catch up on the latest thinking of all of this too, then you're in a very safe, safe, safe place. And also you're setting an important example to your students, which is the learning never stops. And it's really important that the learning never stops. Yeah. Because, well, you know, that, that's how you keep um, relevant. Yeah, that's how you keep, as you say, that's how you keep learning. I'm still learning, you know, from the work that I do with IT businesses every day. And it's such an exciting industry technology because things are changing all the time. If you are uncomfortable with change, (laughs) technology is not the industry for you, is it? Because it is always changing. I've just learned that digital uh, tattooing is uh, a thing there. So thank you for teaching me that one. (laughs) Now, I first met and talked to you many years ago at the uh, CompTIA conference in London. Um, Many of our listeners will be familiar with CompTIA. They're a huge supporter of uh, advancing women in technology, and they've got a very uh, strong philanthropic drive as well to support initiatives like Teen Tech and others. Does Teen Tech do a lot of collaborating with organisations like CompTIA? Yeah, no, we've 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 done things with with CompTIA and with Com, CompTIA members, and it, everything we do is collaborative. Because mm. uh, you know, when when we first set up Team Tech, um, I had no idea that I was setting up an organisation. I thought I was running a one-off event in two thousand and eight, <laughs> um, and it grew legs and has grown and grown, um, and and here we are. But uh, one of the early decisions we made was uh, because you had a choice, basically, you either become like a mini company, which means that you do everything, you take the burden of delivering everything yourself, which means that obviously to do more, you have to expand and expand and expand, or you collaborate. And that way, uh, I, to me, it made sense for a million different reasons, because by collaborating, everyone learns, you share the learning, um, it enables you to scale far more swiftly, and it's just much more sensible. And also because I think I had seen quite a few examples of people who set things up with the best will in the world, and then after a relatively short period of time, they're when they were reaching out for funding, it was mainly to keep themselves going as opposed to deliver projects. Right. I thought, I, how do we not fall into that trap? Um, because how, and it was, let's collaborate. Um, and so that's the model. So the core of Team Tech is really small. People are often amazed when they realize how small it is. But we, we collaborate with, um, I think it's now probably about 45 different universities over. 300 different companies who work with us at doing you know some of them are sponsors some of them provide volunteers some of them provide expertise some of them you know share what we're doing uh, you know, so everyone does different things with us and and it is quite a complicated thing to keep on top of but it, it I, I just feel that's the best way of, of doing things so yeah. that's a very long answer to your question, isn't it? No, it's wonderful to hear, you know, when you said 45 universities and all these different organisations and stuff. And whilst we're talking about teen tech here, I think there's a lesson for the owners of the IT businesses who listen to this podcast here as well. I've, I've often talked about collaboration between different technology organisations as a way, you know, that old adage, isn't it? If you want to go uh, fast, uh, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That's not just, you know, glib words, though. It actually means something in this industry as a whole. So. 
Yeah, no, we've we've always um, been collaborative, even sometimes when, you know, you might think it's not in our best interests to be so. But my sort of benchmark is um, if we do this, um, you know, with this organization, is it going to benefit young people? And if the answer is yes, then we do. And we take the risks that that might involve um, uh, because you know, that's the right thing to do. And if people um, are not straightforward to deal with, shall we say, well, then, you know, so be it. But, uh, you know, our aim is always to help as many young people as we can have opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Yeah, and you are doing wonderful work with it. Now, at the start of this season of Tub Talk, we're focusing on amazing women in technology. I interviews, uh, interviewed Baroness Berridge, uh, the UK's Minister for Equality in Women, or Elizabeth, as I rather uh, cheekily uh, called her throughout the interview. Now, I know that in November 2013, you led a digital task force to look at the best ways to encourage young people to develop the digital skills of the future. I guess my question is, what role does the government have in encouraging young people for a career in technology or indeed any of the STEM topics? I think, um, and again, this is me talking personally now. (laughs) Um, I I think we do need to have a, a fairly serious rethink about what happens within schools. Um, we are in the 21st century. Uh, we are facing unprecedented challenges, uh, um, you know, obviously we've got, you know, COP26, you know, where all of our global leaders are coming together to try and work out what we do, you know, about um, in, uh, climate change. But there are challenges on every front in terms of poverty and education and health and equality. So there's a massive amount of work to be done. And sometimes I think for young people in school, it's really quite hard for them to grasp some of the relevance of the nature uh, of how they're being assessed. Um, And they, you know, they can't see the point of what they're learning. Um, And and if the way we approached learning at school was really delivering for us in terms of giving, you know, employers the kind of employees who they felt were going to work well or, you know, giving students the right mindset to be able to set companies up and, you know, deliver exciting new um, ideas, then, you know, I wouldn't be saying this, but I don't think that is quite what's happening. And instead, we've just got a bit of a, I think we're we're trapped at the moment in the way that education is running in a circle. You've got, um, obviously, the examination boards who are trying to set exams which are meaningful. Um, You've got Ofsted monitoring what happens in the schools. You've got schools trying to feature as high as they can in, in you know, the, the you know the various performance charts. But that none of that helps enough students realise their own potential and the potential, you know, whether you regard it as you know UK PLC or the Earth PLC. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's simply not delivering, and so. Uh, I, I just think we just—it's it, time maybe for a bit of a rethink, not in a way that would, you know, send teachers thinking, "Oh no, not again, <laughs> not again." We can't, you know. Um, but I, I, one of the things I was really hoping would come out of the pandemic 
which has led to so much uncertainty in schools. And, um, you know, schools have demonstrated how brilliant they are at being this uh, linchpin of the community because that's what they absolutely became. And I was really hoping that that might be part of a, you know, a seismic change in how schools approached learning um, and how they how teachers were supported and helped, you know, um, to do the jobs that they know they love, um, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, they help the teachers do the jobs that they love and in the way that they feel is in the best interests of their students. That, that's what I think the government could really, you know, support. And I think sometimes uh, there's a lot of focusing on things which are not really relevant to the challenges of, of today. Yeah, I would agree. And interestingly, I think even though we're talking, you and I, from a very UK-centric perspective, the audience of this podcast, the listeners, are from all over the world. I am willing to bet, though, there are people in North America, in Australia, uh, in Europe listening to this and nodding along and saying, yeah, this is what our government, this is the way we need to change uh, education local to us as well. Because I do think it's a global thing. I don't think it's just uh, UK-specific from that perspective, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, our, our our whole system needs to be far more inclusive, and um, and yeah, and just give give schools a chance to be more engaging because you know the kids become disengaged because you know either they can't they don't think what what's happening is relevant or they think it's very dull, um, and uh, there there are so many different ways that you know learning can be. Uh, uh, approached Um, and uh, the thing that really has sort of saddened me are great teachers leaving the profession and Mm. I I, I, just because it's just become too stressful and not what they really signed up to do which is very on the other hand you've got these you know amazing teachers um who as far as i'm concerned over especially over the last i mean at any point but especially over the last whatever it is 19 months or so have just done this extraordinary juggling act in um in, in what they've done to support their their students yeah, agreed. My wife would be absolutely agreeing with you at uh, this point as well. So, you know, she has worked in- incredibly hard along with all of her colleagues uh, doing remote work, being in the, uh, I was going to say in the office, but in the school, doing everything that's asked for them. So a, a big thank you to everybody involved in education. On that topic, I'm a, a stepfather to two teenage boys. So I've got a rough idea of what they think of the IT industry or what they think of the tech industry as a whole. What's your experience of speaking to young people about the IT industry, about technology? How do they view it at the moment? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. They don't know a great deal about it. Their enthusiasm is varies hugely um, and it depends what kind of contact they may or may not have had so if they know someone if there's someone in their family or a family friend or something who works in tech then they may have a bit more of an idea about what might be possible um, and, and when students do find out what's possible they there is no stopping stopping them I mean one of the approaches that Teen Tech uses is uh, the the kids take part in a program called the Teen Tech Awards program, where they develop 
their own ideas and it's very open brief can you make life better simpler safer or more fun using science and tech and you know the ideas are many and various but the point is it's an idea which that student for whatever reason cares about and believes in and then we connect that student with mentors and they, they go on a bit of a you know it's a bit of a cliche to talk about a learning journey but that's what they go on um in very unexpected ways um you know sometimes and um, then what you see emerging at the end of that are young people who are incredibly enthusiastic about tech because they've just had a sense of not only you know this is a really important area but actually you know i i could do something in this in this area because um, and and so then they you know their their opinion changes, but if they don't have access, I mean, I mean, if I take my own my, my own daughter is now um, thirty three, uh, but one of the reasons I set Team Tech up was because she was I think I don't know would have been fifteen or sixteen at the time, and. She had absolutely, you know, if, you, if I said to her about, why don't you think about a career in tech? It was just like, you're kidding me. Why would I, <laughs> why would I want to do that? Yeah. Everything she experienced um, at, at, at school, which then it was just, it was um, called simply um, IT. And it, it was all about sort of spreadsheets and Word documents. Um you know, but uh, I guess so she couldn't absolutely couldn't see the point of, you know, why would she want to do that? So she went off and she did a degree in geography. But then after doing that degree, she worked with a mate of mine um, straight out of university. And, um, you know, he, he'd got a startup. I asked him, would he like to borrow Rose for six months <laughs> and and that, that meant she got lots of experience and started to think actually maybe this world of tech that you know mum's been banging on about forever might be for me and now you know she's had the most amazing career in tech uh, but, but you know the, the thing there the, the massive advantage that Rose had was that I knew someone um, we could afford when Rose finished uni for her to go and work for free um, because um, the person who was had his startup certainly couldn't afford to pay anybody at that stage. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and that's what we want to make available to everybody yeah. is that network is, is, you know, right. So you really enjoy this. Well, let me, ask, you know, and that's what we, what Team Tech does is just to connect students to people who we feel are going to give them experiences give them insight like we had a, um, some students in Brixton um, who were had got a, a really nice idea for uh, 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 in, in fact we got them to demonstrate their product at a CompTIA meeting um, right. these lads from Brixton who it was a it was a comic and an inter a sort of an interactive comic and it using sort of um AR and you sort of you held your mobile phone over the comic and then you're able to download games and anyway it was a nice idea and we connected those students to the CTO of Disney in the states um, and the purpose of doing that was because we wanted those students to have the experience of talking 
to someone really inspirational. Just get that because it is very uh, motivating if someone like that sits and listens to your idea and goes, I really like that. You know, and, um, you know, Nick was really good because, you know, he sort of said, look, um, if this was my idea, I know what I would do, but I've got, you know, 500 people sitting behind me (laughs) who I can go, right, here you go, get on with it. Um, There's just three of you. So here are the things that... um, I think you could do to build on this idea and start to turn it into something. And as a result of that conversation, to cut a very long story short, um, they built the product, they learned a new programming language, um, and you know they've they've gone into tech careers. Wow. And, and and that you know he provided that that bit of motivation, rather like your teacher did for you, because we all need that person who essentially goes I'm going to take you seriously here because I think you've got you've got it in you and one of the kids I mean and, and he is very open he's, he he's joined um our young person advisory group for teen tech and um he said the whole reason he got involved in with the um teen tech in the first place was because he was always in detention for one thing or another and the teacher who led what was then like a teen tech club um, said, look, you're always in here. You might as well come and be part of this thing rather than (laughs) (laughs) sitting over there doing whatever detention assignment had been given to him. And that's, you know, um, so it's really gratifying uh, from my point of view that when you you see the way that that, the students start to actually, this is, this is an interesting world. What's more, I can be part of it. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody listening has got that opportunity because we all know uh, young people, people in, uh, mm. we can open doors, we can offer inspiration, we can offer motivation. So absolutely. On on that point, so we've talked about, you know, things that uh, what governments can do at a national and global level. We've talked about universities and schools. On a more grassroots level, what can the owners of small and medium-sized IT businesses do to attract young people? And uh, more um, girls and women into the IT industry because IT or certainly the sector of IT that I work in tends to be very male dominated. So I'm wondering what can we do? What can the listeners of this show do at a more grassroots level to encourage more girls and women into the industry? Oh, I think there's there's lots. I think um, one of the things which often happens is a company will go, right, well, you know, we need to go out there and run some kind of an initiative. But what I always encourage people to do is to take a long, hard look at themselves first and think, okay, so um, how many, you know, when we're recruiting sort of like, you know, what's the balance of, what's the gender balance when we're recruiting? How good are we at retaining staff? If we're not that good at retaining, what, how long do people stay? Why do they leave us? Um, And, what could we do to change change what's going on? Because mm. sometimes, because one of the inter- like advertising uh, is an industry which has no trouble whatsoever in gender recruitment initially, but they have pretty similar issues. If you go up the, you know, you rise up through middle management, management, blah blah. That um, you know, at board level, you can again, you can uh, <laughs> simplifying things here, but you almost like parachute people onto a board. But that 
thing about right the way keeping that balance or, or just thinking well why is the shift they yeah. have they have issues too so it's not just about can we be better at recruiting and the answer is probably always you know that all things that we can do but really take a long hard look at what are we doing to make sure that once we've got that talent on board, that we're doing everything we can to support it, that there aren't, um, we aren't subconsciously, because of the culture of a company, being less, you know, inclusive and, you know, about just about the way we do things. Um, yeah, that makes a lot. That makes an awful lot of sense, and especially around the culture of the business. But really interestingly, I've spoken to a number of amazing women on the show this season. Many of them, in fact, nearly all of them, have told me that they work in IT because of something we mentioned earlier: the changing nature of the industry. They never get bored. They say they love turning up every day, and there's something new. So, I, I guess the question here would be: How can IT business owners? emphasize that excitement when they're recruiting for the roles instead of just saying oh yeah there's a job description we pay this much money and it's in tech how can they emphasize that this is an exciting time to work in tech yeah well i mean um uh, they could start by putting that in the job <laughs> yes um, uh, yeah no I, I i think the way an ad is is worded is really important okay. and i think it's also about being re- sort of being realistic when you're recruiting i mean sometimes you do need you know for whatever job it is a very specific skill and if you need that specific skill and if it takes 10 years to um have that specific skill then fair enough put that in the job description but if the skills that you need the specific skills can be learned relatively quickly and what you're after really is someone who is I mean the thing that made me apply for my job in telly all those years ago wasn't the stuff that they put in the ad about what you would be able to do but there was a little phrase that said or would you be willing to learn now that Uh, made me apply now that's what should go in every description because essentially that's what you want you want someone who's willing to learn and depending on and, and you know be able to you know roll with the developments of your company because what whatever whatever level you come in like we've been saying you're always going to need to learn and adapt and do new things um and you know if you if you're recruiting people at the very early stages of the career then you want people maybe who are are coachable um uh, so it is it's just sort of really thinking hard about what you know what do you really want and do you have to have that long list of things mm. um do you really have to do you really need someone to be able to do all of those things yeah, um, that absolutely makes sense when when i ran my it business uh, and i still say to the owners of it businesses now when i recruited i always recruited for personality because the tech skills were easy to teach, in my opinion, or relatively easy to teach. To teach somebody, uh, you know, um, how, you know, customer service and all these other things, or just to be inquisitive, to be curious, that's something that's really difficult to teach. So we all always used to recruit for personality first. Absolutely. So, you know, when I do sort of presentations, um, I often show something which uh, I'm just, I think it was the... Um, the World Economic Forum produced this wonderful wheel of the digital skills that everyone really needs to learn. And it's a multicolored wheel, you know, packed full of all these different skills. Um, and I think, yeah, that's for sure. That's absolutely 
you know, we, it's very important we develop these skills. But just as you say, that there are personal qualities which I put around the outside of that wheel, like, you know, thinking bold, being able to work in a team, being able to both give and accept feedback um, and, you know, leadership qualities, um, resilience, blah, blah, blah. And, and just as you say, those things take years to learn. You can't just say to someone, look, can you just think a bit more big and bold? Because <laughs> if you've never had the opportunity to think big and, big and bold, and most importantly, if you've never been able to do that in a relatively safe place where it's accepted that if you do think big and bold, sometimes your big and bold thinking is not going to be successful. Um, you're you're just not going to be able to do it. Uh, so you know that's one of the, again. You know I, I I I'm doing some work with one of the exam boards at the moment, and I, I hope I'm not being too deep a thorn in their flesh. But I keep on saying, why don't we give give students the ability to fail at certain things, but for them to acknowledge that they know that they've not they've made a mistake you know so can we because that admission of right I've I've done this but I know it's not right <laughs> I'm trying to work out what's what you know what's wrong uh, etc you know those are important things for people just to be able to do at any stage in their their career to accept actually and how often have we seen people persist with projects which are a total disaster, but they don't want to admit that it's not working. So it's just like, no, we're going to carry on. It's like, well, why are we going to carry on with this <laughs> actually working? Yeah, there's, there's an argument that uh, a lot of IT projects, especially at the government level and further, could probably, uh, that accusation could be made in them. But we will we will uh, not gloss over that. We will leave that subject there. I want to give a shout out to one of the initiatives that Team Tech has launched, which at the time this podcast go, which uh, will uh, be ongoing, I should say, at the time this episode, is released and it's actually focused on my adopted region of the northeast of England. So I'm at home in uh, in the studio garage in Newcastle upon Tyne in my home here in uh, uh, the northeast. Tell us what Teen Tech Northeast Live looks Ooh, like. Yes, well, from um, uh, the beginning of November, um, right the way through to next, the end of March, we're running. Um, a lot of live sessions for young people. Uh, generally, they're around about an hour. Uh, and, you know, it, it, students um, and teachers and parents can join them. They, they, the live session goes out at a certain time of day. But if you know that you want to see the session, but you can't join it live, you can send questions up front so that your questions will still be answered. And we cover every which area of industries, which actually are going to be very important um, in, the, in the Northeast. So it's not about uh, uh, career areas, which, you know, we, we talk about them, but it's not happening. The, these are things which are going to be very much happening in, the, in, um, in, in that region. And I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, I think there's been a narrative and, um, which I find quite disturbing amongst young people, which is, I'm not saying it's of hopelessness, but there's been this narrative about, oh, you know, not going to be, you know, much harder for you to get a job, blah, blah. But, you know, the jobs are changing, but they there are a lot of opportunities and they are right there in the northeast. So we just wanted to 
to shine a spotlight on those um, opportunities, whether it's, you know, within the, you know, the free port or, you know, Nissan, the kind of people that they're um, looking for, the, you know, the LM wind power with, you know, what's happening there, um, animation companies, et cetera, et cetera. We're covering a broad spectrum of of industries so yeah yeah so if you are listening to this and you're a parent um or a company in the northeast and you want to get involved then um go on the teen tech website and you'll find details of how to be part of it absolutely we will include links in the show notes to everything that we've talked about to do with uh, teen tech to do with teen tech northeast live and uh, comptia and everything else as well talking tech for a moment I'm interested, Maggie, what technology trends are you finding most exciting right now? For instance, you know, I know you've been intrigued by the potential for low latency 5G and the impact that can, that can have. What excites you in the tech space right now? Oh, um, I, I always get excited when I see people doing really cool projects. And you mentioned 5G there. And I think a lot of people have been going, oh, well, you know, isn't it just, you know, just, you know, on my phone, there's just going to be a new little thing. And, you know, but but it has the potential to be an absolute game changer for all sorts of industries. I mean, um, game design is an obvious one because it means that things which might have, if you're keen on playing um, games, that you may have only been able to experience properly by being, you know, literally hardwired to your, you know, your game console at home, that you'll be able to do some really cool things out and about because the um, the the low latency of um, 5G means that everything sort of speeds up and more people can do more of the same stuff in the same place. And that is, you know, from a very practical point of view, means if you go to a music festival and whereas normally you can't even send a text because the, the bandwidth <laughs> is eaten up, that will um, disappear. But it also, the thing that really excites me are some of the imaginative opportunities. So I was talking to uh, uh, someone from the music industry and obviously the music industry in terms of their carbon footprint is, it, you know, it's quite a heavy footprint really with all of the pan I never say that. the big trucks. My mum always used to say, "Don't use words if you can't say them." Um, you know, <laughs> massive trucks carrying, um, yes. you know, uh, you know, all of the equipment around. And what he was sort of saying was that, you know, in the same kind of way that people go to the pub to watch um, a match, that you know, having ways for people to interact with music in similar ways, but also to have musicians who might be able to play simultaneously to, um, all over the world. But say you had one of those musicians in your village, you know, um, so you had a gathering of, you know, I don't know, the, a thousand people or whatever from your village. Um, so you've got someone there who might be playing bass guitar, but the lead singer might be in Mexico and the, you know, that this is all possible. Mm. Um, and they've, they've done experiment, And I get very excited by things like that because I, I think, gosh, this is a way of really um, making, doing things in communities that could be very, that could be very exciting. So yeah, so yeah. I think 5G is a is a game. And, and actually, obviously, I, I focused on the, you know, the creative industry. So yeah, with 5G and looked at, you know, what organizations like um, the National Gallery and the Royal Shakespeare Company are doing, which is great. Um, but 
you know, the opportunities for industry and, and health are also very much there. So, yeah, that, 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 that I find very exciting. And the other area that I... I'm very interested in is the whole area of data. And we introduced within our Team Tech Award programme the use of data as a judging category across all of our awards, which is because we just felt it was so important. And even if the students had just a glimpse of that this is something, this is going to be an ever-growing area, and it's important for two reasons. Um, There's going to be masses of jobs in the in you know mm, definitely. In, in that field but also it's really important from a personal point of view that you have an understanding of why of the value of your own data and the way you need to respect other people's data as well that you know we just wanted those things to be um you know, had to come together but mm, i've yeah. seen some i mean i was i was talking to a really interesting company um who use satellites to collect data, you know, on, as you might imagine, on things like deforestation in terms of climate change. But they do things in a really sophisticated way by partnership working. Um, so they've partnered up with, um, oh, I you know, it's an uh, organi- organisation in Scotland, and I'll remember the name of the organisation, but um, I want to call it, say, Wildlife Scotland, but it's probably not called that. Um, but basically, um, an organisation that is working on the ground in Scotland. And so what they are doing with combining the satellite data with um, very granular information about the way the whole landscape is changing in Scotland means that they can prioritise, you know, we all know there's loads of things that we need to do, but what what, what is it important? <clears throat> what should be our list of priorities, you know? So we need to make sure that we don't destroy any more of the peat bogs in Scotland because that they take millions of years to develop, or thousands of years, certainly. Um, so that needs to be an absolute top priority. You know, planting trees, trees grow in the scheme of things relatively quickly. I was just really interested by that, the, the fairly granular detail that yeah. they were able to provide. If you can only do four things, these are the four things you should do right now. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's fascinating. I mean, first of all, that 5G that you mentioned, because most people just think, oh, yeah, it's going to be uh, my Netflix is going to go fast. <laughs> I'm going to get faster <laughs> movies or whatever. But it's much more, more than that, isn't it? Much more than that. But when you mention about the data as well, we are capturing data at, at just an incredible rate. And it's only the capture of data is only going to become bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I'm looking around the room, you know, where I am here, dozens of devices every second capturing all sorts of data. What are we doing with that data? Are we dealing with that data from in an ethical perspective? And how can we make positive changes in the world using that data? So I absolutely agree with you. I think it's just, you know, huge opportunities uh, within there. You mentioned your mom earlier, who sounds like a very uh, wise lady indeed. I've heard you talk about your dad before and said that he was a techie. Uh, but you've also mentioned earlier on that it wasn't until you started work on Tomorrow's World that you had any real sense of the wide range of opportunities in a tech career. What caught your attention initially about a career in tech? What still excites you about a career in tech today? Oh, it's always the people. 
you know, it's not the widgets. Yeah. It's, it, it's the people. And I think it's the problem solving, uh, you know, aspect of it. I mean, if I, you know, think back to, the, you know, like when I, when I, when I was doing tomorrow's world, um, I think one of the things that struck me was I, I'd never imagined that there were so many problems that needed to be solved. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, some of the sort of like quite wacky devices. I mean, it was things like, um, I always remember one that stood out was like this fishing rod that lit up in the dark. And I, I you kind of think, I never knew this was a problem. Then. <laughs> yeah. The fact that, you can't see your fishing rod in the dark, um, you know. Um, so, so that 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 I think um, was very interesting. But, but it, it is it is the people, and and I think that was the thing that I me suddenly you know it was like a massive penny um, dropping when I I joined tomorrow's world and and saw just the different routes that people had come into technology, um, the the different ways that they were innovating and uh, I, I I just found it absolutely fascinating and the stories uh, you know the the tenacity of some of those innovators I mean you know Dyson and is someone who you know people often sort of quote you know but he and his wonderful cleaner were on tomorrow's world you know when it was the concept because that was the thing about tomorrow's world is that we always had things before they ever appeared you know, obviously in the shops, um, but we had, but they were always very much, pro, you know, prototypes. And so Dyson's cleaner came on the show 15 years before it appeared in the shops. Wow. And I think Dyson did something like, it was over 5,000 prototypes. I've heard that, yeah. And I just thought, gosh, the tenacity of this person. And you can sort of imagine his family going, Give up on the cleaner. <laughs> yes. Go look at the wheelbarrow or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, so it was it was that, you know, the personality of the people involved. And and, and I think something that has been with me from you know, when I from when I left school really was I always loved working in a team, and that was the thing that has always excited. I, I I love being part of a team which is you know, rowing in the same same direction. And I've been very fortunate. I was fortunate on Swap Shop in the early days and then on Tomorrow's World and then on Hospital Watch and subsequent um, telly shows. And then now with, you know, with, with Teen Tech, you know, I, and I realised when I reflected on it a, a, a couple of years ago that that's what I've just wanted to, to create with, um, with Teen Tech is that, is that team um, because it's actually no fun doing things on your own. <laughs> yeah. It's great fun doing it with people. And sometimes it's great fun doing it with people who disagree with you because you kind of need people like that within the team going, that's mad, or come on, we definitely can do it. Um, yeah. it, it that, that's, that's, that, that's just great. And, oh, and I love that. Thank you for sharing that. We, we mentioned Tomorrow's World. I, I grew <laughs> up watching Tomorrow's World in the 1980s. I'd go as far as to say it was a huge influence on me in choosing a career in tech. And I think I speak for a lot, certainly of the UK listeners to this show will, will probably feel the same way. However, for any of our younger audience, or perhaps, you know, this show goes out all across the world, for any anybody outside of the UK, could you explain what the Tomorrow's World TV show looked like? 
Well, the, the, the premise was, uh, this, you know, this was shown, I mean, I wasn't, it started in 1965. Yeah. I mean, um, Obviously, I wasn't presenting it then. I was a child myself watching it. And, and the premise of the show was just showing you the, you know, the innovations of the future. And right, you know, I joined the, the, the programme in the 1980s. And when we showed things on the programme, we were showing and demonstrating them for the very first time. That would have been the first time that you... Um, however old you were then, would have seen whatever it was that we yeah. were showing. And it was really important to us. And we were incredibly sniffy. It's like, you know, has it been a new scientist? No, not interested. Um, you know, uh, people had to have not shown whatever it was. And, and we had some extraordinary prototypes. Um, and as I say, things years before they became a product. And so there was a huge amount of trust in, involved. But the key thing about Tomorrow's World was that it was live. So this wasn't pre-recorded. And so it was a live show. There were four of us presenting it. It was half an hour long. And until the closing titles ran, your stomach never stopped turning over. It was so badly wrong at any time. Um, and I still can't hear the Tomorrow's World theme music without feeling faintly sick. Um, but that, I think, for many was one of the attractions of the show. It was such an honest programme. Yes. You know? Um, I seem to recall, you know, watching when I was younger, and obviously memory fades sometimes, but some of the demonstrations going wrong. Uh, so I always assumed it was it was live, or you were very um, uh, very broad with the uh, the editing and just sort of left it in, or very raw with it. Um, can you remember any that went spectacularly wrong at the time? Anything you talked about that not in the pit of your stomach when you hear the music now? Is there any things that come back and just make you sort of shudder a little bit and think, "Oh my goodness"? Well, do you know, it's, it's quite interesting because there were things that went wrong, and they went wrong, and it was a surprise that they mm. went wrong. Um, now, in a funny kind of way, that was easier to deal with. I mean, I before I did Tomorrow's World, I'd done four years on Saturday mornings where, you know, there was no script. So I was quite used to getting myself out of tricky situations. And the thing you always had to be prepared to do was if your item was supposed to run at two minutes 20 or three minutes 40, that's what you had to do. Otherwise, you would mess up things, not only for yourself, but everybody else. So you had to, you had to have a bit of a plan B. But if something suddenly went wrong, in, in a weird kind of way, that was fine. The thing that was awful was when you went on air knowing that there was a very high chance that it wasn't going to work. Right. And that was truly dreadful because you, you knew you, it, you were... You just felt like a, an absolute, you know, victim uh, that you were going to, you'd got however long to talk about whatever, and it was unlikely to do what you were going to say it was it was going to do. So that was much worse. And so, uh, to answer your question properly, I think anything voice activated was a nightmare, and and it was it was a nightmare for a very practical reason, which is that in a very subtle way. Your voice does change when you mm. are doing something live. So no matter how much you rehearse with your voice, I remember this was the very early days of um, voice activated te 
voice activated technology that uh, you could never absolutely capture what your voice would be like when you were live. And then the thing wouldn't do what it was supposed to do. And I've got all lots of memories of voice, you know, whenever someone said, oh, it's voice activated, but it's really good. you know, your heart sank and you thought, no, I know what's going to happen. And that, and that was, that was the, that, that was awful. Mm. But, you know, it was just, it was a beautiful, beautiful show to do. And the, you know, talking about teams, a marvellous presenting team, you know, we we always helped each other. It's like, you could see someone's in, was in trouble. (laughs) You lurked in case you could go and help them through whatever bit of disaster was going on. So it was, a, it was very supportive um, on camera. But the production team were amazing. Um, and we had a wonderful studio director who very sadly died just a few months ago, very suddenly and tragically, called Stuart McDonald. And he was the absolute best. So sometimes you would be doing an item and it would start to go wrong. Now, in your ear, because we wore earpieces, you would hear Stuart and typically you would go, right, Maggie, well, here in the gallery, we're all waiting with bated breath to see how you get out of this one. <laughs> and, and having a voice like that made it all right, you know, because you felt they were on your side. They, You know, and if you'd had a studio director who was in a panic and flapping, but Stuart was this wonderful voice of calm and, you know, reason and sort of said, well... You know, you've got two more minutes of this, Maggie. I hate to let you know, but, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, when something went wrong, you know, you'd hear Stuart say, going well. Um, and it was just, it was lovely. And so that was very, that, that was very supportive. And, and the liveness and the fact that sometimes things didn't go wrong, didn't go right, the, the liveness and the, the fact that sometimes things didn't, go according to plan was was very much part of the show's appeal people that they they were the bits that people enjoyed you know yeah great memories great memories of that show you were you were part of uh tomorrow's world until was the early mid 90s i think wasn't it yeah well i uh, after my daughter was born um i i left and then uh, i came back in the in the 90s to do some um reporting and 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 that was and you know that was that was nice and then you know obviously came um back much more recently with um bangos the theory but it, it was a it was an absolute joy and and the people who i work with both on on screen and off remain my my closest and and dearest friends we were united in that fear oh that's that's absolutely lovely if you are watching if you are listening to this i should say and Maggie's talking about doing uh, live demonstrations of untested technology on air and you're freezing a little bit. Next time you go to do a presentation or a demonstration to your clients and think, I hope Windows works properly or I hope this, just remember, it's a drop in the ocean compared to what Maggie and the team did on tomorrow's world there. So that's one way, definitely one way to look at it. If you are listening to this and you've not heard of Tomorrow's World before, uh, and I think a large portion of the audience will remember it very fondly. But if you're a, a younger or perhaps outside the UK, not familiar with it, go and check out some of the archive footage on uh, YouTube. An absolute treat. Some incredible, incredible footage, which uh, I want to uh, uh, mention a couple of them later on, uh, Maggie. But 
would you be open to answering some questions from listeners? Because Absolutely. Yeah, oh, you, absolutely. You've, you've got so many fans in the tech industry, and I happened to mention to a few people that I was doing this interview, and they were like, oh, can you ask Maggie this question? Can you ask Maggie that question? So I promised a, a few people, some loyal listeners, that I'd ask the question. So Craig Sharp, uh, who runs a brilliant uh, managed service provider and IT business based out of Birmingham and a good friend, Craig asked, do you think we as a society have lost the wow factor on technology? So given that when Maggie was on Tomorrow's World, almost every demonstration was innovative and amazing, do you think we've lost that in modern society? I think one of the, one of the things which obviously is different now to when I was presenting Tomorrow's World is the internet. Um, uh, you know, and if you are interested in technology, that is obviously the most fantastic window on what is happening. So I think if you want to find out about it, you can in a way that simply wasn't um, possible in the in the 1980s. But the other thing I that is one of something I feel quite strongly about is that when there are tech shows on the telly, frequently they are about home technology or consumer technology and not about because technology as you know is, is absolutely absolutely massive now you know home tech is important because it affects each and every one of us but then you do get locked in a kind of iteration of here's the new iphone <laughs> or whatever um, as opposed to people working on developments which may not um, see the light of day for another, you know, 10 years. So I, I think maybe sometimes it's to do with the reporting of technology. Mm. And then I also wonder, because the other thing, and I never quite got to the bottom of it really, is, well, you know, when I was re reporting on Tomorrow's World, we really did show things which were at prototype stage. And nowadays there is a lot of secrecy, obviously, around right. people's... Um, innovations um there's a fear of them being copied um so you know maybe that is something that is you know it's harder for people to feel confident about sharing their tech whereas i think maybe the impetus that people knew if they weighed that up that tomorrow's world had a great audience and if you'd got something in its inventory invent infancy that there could be someone watching who would help you take it further and so it was worth taking the risk i don't know i've it's something yeah. i've you know often often thought about uh great question think, yeah 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 no it's a really really great question and maybe we have got to the stage where we're more surprised by what technology can't do than what it can yeah well we've got a couple of questions around that uh, but talking of a uh, uh, here's another question Talking of amazing uh, women in IT, Tracy Pound uh, from Tamworth asks, and Tracy's been a guest on the podcast before, an incredible lady. She says, more tech businesses are run by men than women. What can we do to support men looking to increase gender diversity in their business and not just leave them feeling frustrated and without a plan? I love this question from, uh, from Tracy because we're talking about practical advice and many of the listeners to this show, men, run IT businesses, want to encourage more girls and women into IT, but feel frustrated that they can't think of a concrete plan to do so. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a great question because I think it's really important that men are, are absolutely part of the conversation um, and, you know, on trying to unpick if, if they're running a company and they want to make 
the you know their employees and uh, people working in it um, much more diverse. And, and I think one of the things always is that if you if you want to change, because sometimes, and I'm not saying that all companies are like this, but some seem to be is they they want to achieve diversity but they don't necessarily want to change to do it it's like we want a diverse workforce but no we're not going to change anything <laughs> we just want people in here doing things in the same kind of way and i think an appreciation that of, of people being able to work differently but still work effect you know effectively is is, is a good one to have isn't it yeah, and yeah. yeah yeah it's um and, and and just you know if you if you measure certain things so you understand where you may or may not be making Im- improvements there was one organization who as part of their recruitment process they used to have put all of the people who applied through a certain set of tests <clears throat> one of which was it involved some kind of a um, a spatial awareness test and they and they actually looked at their this whole process because they were starting off with a fairly even balance in terms of gender. But by the time they came to the final, you know, um, few who they were going to interview, that diversity had more or less evaporated. And so they actually looked at all of the things to see at what stage are we shedding? <laughs> and it was in this sort right. of spatial awareness thing. And they went, but that isn't even mission critical <laughs> we don't necessarily need people to be able to do this thing and you know so sometimes it can be you know the, the solution can be simple um but i think that the thing around culture is really important and understanding the things that do make a bit of a difference to you know yeah. to women um and also you know when when women I mean, I know that when I had my daughter, that things really did change. And I found at that time in the BBC, certain inflexibilities made things very hard. Mm. Um, and it's a real shame because you lose talent um, if you can't take a longer term view on. And they're sporting both, you know, men as well as women when they have when they have have families, um, you know. Because it's an important part of life, isn't it? You know, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> just, that just a little, yes. forget about it. As you know, that, <laughs> let's accept that women are going to, you know, perhaps their priorities will change. Yeah, um, you know, but yeah, you, you're. It, it's important to value talent and look at how you you can do it. I mean, I know that you know I, I lead a, a very small company, but the majority of um, people who work there are women. Many of them are part-time and have families and have got priorities of different kinds. And, uh, you know, I think just sort of listening and then, and people's priorities do change. So what works well at a certain time doesn't work quite so well, you know, now for me, I don't mind when people do, you know, the various tasks or what, you know, as long as they happen, it doesn't. As long as the results are there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter, you know, when, and, and, you know, I just asked that, you know, if people have got for whatever reason, any kind of, you know, you know, something happening in their lives, which is making things difficult at work that they just let me know. And we will work around that and find, yeah. you know, and that's because I value, really value every single person. It would, I'd be crestfallen if they, any of them, you know, left teen tech. Um, yeah. You know, we, we, 
I think it builds an incredible amount of loyalty as well with the team when, because unfortunately it is remarkable for employers to show that level of interest in employees. Unfortunately, hopefully that will change, but it does build an incredible amount of loyalty uh, from the team when you, when you extend that uh, listening ear and flexibility to them as well. So. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, as, as I say, I, I do preface that. I mean, I appreciate, you know, we are a, you know, a tiny organization in the scheme of things, but there, you know, the, there should be ways within a massive organisation for that cascading down, um, uh, for of that level, that level of appreciation and care, and, yes. and just showing how much you value you value people. Mm. Here are a couple of quick fire questions from a couple of listeners. Uh, Polly Brennan, who is a very adventurous lady. In fact, her business is Adventurous Polly. Uh, she asks, does Maggie think robots and or AI will ever replace humans at work, leaving us to pursue a life of pure adventure? <laughs> you know, it was it was always something that was talked about, wasn't it? That somehow in the future... Um, yeah, I certainly didn't imagine that I'd be working quite as hard as I'm working now because, you know, the idea was that, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, robots or automation, that this would give us a life of freedom. And all it does, it seems to do is create yet more, more and more work. Agreed. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, do you know what? Again, you know, the pandemic has been, is dreadful. Um but I think it has encouraged a lot of people to reevaluate what really matters and what they want to do and what they how what they want to spend their time doing, and also just how incredibly precious time is. And you know, I I would love to think that we would hit a time where the idea of working uh, <laughs> my perfect week would be sort of three days a week. I think three yeah. days. Three days with a four-day weekend would be marvellous, um, you know, and, and wouldn't that be possible? And would that mean that, you know, more people would be employed and would, would do satisfying jobs? Um, would it mean that we might not have all of the stuff that we think that we need? Um, I don't know what the, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist, as you can probably gather, <laughs> but I do think that having that time is really is really important and for some people they want to spend you know six days a week working um and that's fine um but i think that that thing you know and if you want to be adventurous and go do things which are really adventurous then yeah that that's what you should be doing i mean the ideal way is to think how can i combine my love of adventure with something that you know recompenses me in some way that can I combine the two in um in a way that would be really satisfying would be the the the, the clever thing the clever thing to do but no I'm with you you know I I you know I love doing the things that I love I love doing and um I've I've, I've got better and better at making time for those yeah. things it's it's important. I'm reading uh, Oliver Berkman's uh, book at the moment, where he's talking about exactly what you just said. We technology, in theory, is supposed to free up our time, and indeed it does. But it just enables us, or what we seem to do with it, is to just do things faster and harder. We just fill our time with more stuff, rather than you know freeing up our time and then going and doing lots of fun stuff. We just try and do 
more stuff. So really interesting question from Polly. Here's the question. David Miller, who I know is a huge fan, asks, with everything Maggie has seen, does she think we will ever be able to transfer electricity via a wireless medium? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. You know, there, there was some interesting, very early experiments with this. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm now trying to think back. I think, I think the earliest experiments happened in the in the states. Um, yeah, it was Nikolai Tesla, wasn't it? And uh, yeah. did, did work in this field. But have you have you That's seen it. anything that that uh, suggests that you know this is a technology we could maybe expect in the near future? I, I, I mean, if I'm absolutely honest, I haven't seen anything sort of like firsthand. I've not mm. gone and looked at, at, um, at, at something. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, I haven't seen any sort of full scale models of that, of that working. But that doesn't mean to say that there isn't somebody doing it somewhere. Yeah. You know, um, you know, because I, I, you know, I think that is a, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting development. Mm. Talking of wireless, David Withington, and David, I know it was your birthday recently, so happy birthday to you. David asks, did you ever wonder if we'd be using a device like Captain Kirk where you could have a video conversation with somebody thousands of miles away? <laughs> so when you first saw what we now know as like smartphones, cell phones, wireless devices, what was your reaction back when you first saw those? Oh, well, I mean, I'm trying to think about what would have been the first device like that that I actually saw. And, you know, because we, you know, talked about various things on Tomorrow's World. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, well, obviously the thing that we talked about endlessly was, you know, one day we will all have a computer in our pocket, which I thought was completely unfeasible. Really? Um, wow. Well, uh, well, you know, just because I saw the size of computers as they were, and I think there's a bit of me that, though I like to think I'm very creative, was you know, perhaps slightly unimaginative. And I certainly never thought it would be the mobile phone because the mobile phones that we had, uh, you know, during that, that period of time were so incredibly clunky and all you could do was talk and, you know, only if you were lucky and you happened to be in, in um, you know, one of the little cells, as they, you know, um, referred to cell phone. Um, I, I never thought you'd be able, we'd be able to be sharing videos and um and you just pick your phone up as I do. And, you know, my, my great and lovely colleague from Tomorrow's World is in the, lives in America now, Howard Stableford. And, you know, we sort of like WhatsApp each other at this sort of time of day. Um, I never thought that would, that would, yeah. you know, would be, would be feasible. Uh, so, yeah, so I've, I, and I never lose that sense of wonder that this kind of thing is possible. I mean, it's just ridiculous that we can do this. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And I think one of the, uh, something I, I recognised in myself recently with the pandemic, of course, lots of people separated from their families for long periods of time. I, uh, originally from Birmingham, I caught up with my mum for the first time in over two and a half years a few weeks ago. And of course I missed her, but you know what? It, uh, it was good to, to see her and give her a hug in person, but I didn't miss her from the perspective of, um, you know, I, I wasn't staying in touch with her because I was seeing her almost every day on a video call. And it's amazing, you know, she's 250 miles south of me, but we just felt like we stayed in touch all the time. And I've spoken to lots of people who have felt that same way. And it's a technology we just take for granted. And yet it's it's only in the past few years sort of video calling and that has become something. So, yeah, 
And yeah, I think the last 19, 19 months would have been a very different experience had this happened 15 years ago, say. Agreed, yeah. I think yeah. it would have been very, 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 very dismal. Um, and we would all have felt far more isolated than mm. we felt. Here's an interesting question. So Pascal Fintoni uh, asks, can TV still play a role in inspiring and educating entire generations as it did in the 80s and 90s and uh, which sci-fi and uh, sci-fi TV, movie franchises, uh, those types of things. Uh, Pascal, specific question says, which sci-fi TV or movie franchise would Maggie like to have starred in? <laughs> oh, um, I, do you know, I, I would quite have liked to have been in Doctor Who. Ah, um, it, because that was something I watched, you know, when I was a kid and like a, a particular generation, you know, hid behind sofas because it got so scary at certain points. And then many years later, when, when I was a student at university, I um, doubled for Liz Sladen. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah uh, in a different show, sadly, not in Doctor Who, but I, I was a student and, um, uh, yeah, and uh, I just need. She didn't drive, and I just needed to drive a car. She, they needed me to drive a car, and um, yeah, and so I thought, oh gosh, so near but so far. <laughs> <laughs> I could see you in the Sarah Jane role as one of the Doctor's uh, companions. Uh, yeah, I would have loved it. I would have loved to have been um, Sarah Jane. Um, I'm not saying I would have been any good at it. I don't think I would at all. But I would have. I, I would have quite liked to have uh, been there, or yeah. in um, or Star Trek actually. That. I, I, well, I well, Star Trek, Pascal also put a PS in his message and he said, PS, Maggie would have been a brilliant Catherine, Cap, Captain Catherine Janeway in, in Star Trek as well. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Yeah, after, yeah, no. Well, thank you very much for the endorsement there. Um, yeah. I, when, when they um, did the first Star Trek movie, I went out to... Um, Hollywood and wow. interviewed um, everyone on the, on the set. What an incredible experience. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I met Spock and um, Captain Kirk. Goodness me. There we go. That is that is a story. We, I, I suspect we could fill a podcast just asking you <laughs> questions about that. But I will move on because uh, two of uh, the team, so I want to give massive shout outs to two of my team. We're on episode 100 here and uh, Cole Gray has been the man who has been behind the graphics uh, for the show and that. So a huge public thank you to uh, to Cole. Uh, and Cole asks the question, he said, the move from multicolored swap shop to tomorrow's world is a bit of a genre <laughs> shift in terms of presenting duties, Maggie. Was Maggie always interested in science and tech or was it her presenting role on tomorrow's world that got her interested in the subject? Yeah, yeah, it does seem a bit of a handbrake term. <laughs> um, the, you know, uh, I as, as a teenager, I wanted to be a vet. So at, at school, I was interested in, in the sort of sciences and physics and math. But sadly, I came a bit unstuck with chemistry and I didn't even take chemistry O-level because I was too proud. I thought, I can't, I, you know, I was too proud to fail an exam. So I thought I'm not even going to take it. So then I, I switched to the arts. But I, I always was always interested in, in technology. So the Tomorrow's World offer did come completely out of the blue. And it happened because a producer happened to watch me on Saturday morning. <laughs> I oh. think I was, I think I was in oh, somewhere. Um, 
I was explaining how the cotton mills worked. Um, so I did this explanation in typical Saturday morning um, style. And this producer was sort of watching with his kids and he thought, well, she's quite good at explaining things. You know, and practically on the strength of that, they offered me the role on, on, on Tomorrow's World. Oh, wow. Uh, which and, was amazing. And I'm just forever. So they took a massive, massive risk, a huge risk. And I had a whole year of, you know, there were people there, you know. And also just at that time on, on Swap Shop, as a sort of send up at Top of the Pops, we had made a video which was just meant as a send-up of Top of the Pops, but then kids started wanting to buy the record. And much to our astonishment, it started climbing the charts. And then we were on Top of the Pops, which is the <laughs> ultimate irony. <laughs> and so we just done that. And so there was just like, you know, what have we got this pop star doing on um, on on um, a, a science programme? So, you know, the first year was, was, you know, quite hard going. I'm very glad that social media wasn't, um, you know, a thing then. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure I could have put up with it. But um, I, I did make a, a square hole very much rounder and I because I, I knew that the only way I could approach tomorrow's work was by doing it my own way. Yeah. And the, I suppose... I did love technology. I was very curious. Um, I wanted to understand how things worked. And I was very honest about what I didn't understand. And sometimes that's quite helpful when you're writing scripts because you need to understand what's going to make somebody really want to find out more about whatever this thing is. You know, sometimes you do want to know how it works. And sometimes, quite frankly, you don't particularly want to know how it works. But you want to know what kind of impact it might have. And so just under getting those priorities right. I think I understood how, how to do that. And um, I think the one thing I had going for me were the, the four years of, of live, a live three-hour show um, with no script whatsoever. Um, that, that, was very, that was very helpful. Yeah, baptism of fire, perhaps. If yeah. you can if you can do that, you can do anything in TV, perhaps. And I would say for any of our younger listeners or anybody outside the UK are wondering what on earth multicolored swap shop is, we're not even going to try and explain it. Just go and look that up on YouTube <laughs> and you will get a feel for the chaos that uh, that that it was back in the day. But uh, so thank you, Carl, for the question. And again, thank you, my friend, for, for all the graphics that you've done uh, for this show over the last hundred episodes. Uh, I also want to give a massive shout out to the lady who puts together the show notes and the blog posts for this podcast uh, Gudrun Loray you have done an incredible job thank you for the last 100 episodes Gudrun asks the question Maggie she says what was your favourite future prediction the most ridiculous uh, and the most prediction and the prediction that didn't come true that disappointed you the most so the most ridiculous that you saw and the prediction that didn't come true that you're like oh that really should have come true or I wish it had well, sometimes all of these things are bound up in the same kind of thing. Yeah. So the thing, um, I'm going to sort of answer this question slightly differently. So the piece of technology which I demonstrated and which I never thought would go anywhere was um, SatNav. Mm. And that was because I demonstrated in-car navigation before we had the satellite bit. Right. And it was so clunky and there was a computer with a bubble memory in the boot of the car. <laughs> and it took forever to program this massive board on the windscreen. To stay, and I kept thinking, what's 
<laughs> what exactly is wrong with a map? You know, I, this is this is just um, ridiculous. So, you know that, uh, and, and it was interesting because the company behind companies behind that, they kept in touch, and I did their conferences for many years. And so, yes, then it did become a reality. And the missing bit of the jigsaw was the um, the sat- satellite navigation, which um, made it made everything so much easier. So that was a piece of kit I, I often held groundbreaking technology in my hands and um, didn't fully appreciate its um, its potential. And then, you know, things like the digital camera. Um, so that was a really very much a prototype stage. I mean, mm. I think actually so much so that we didn't have the actual camera in the studio because it had been impounded at customs. So I had to do the demonstration of the digital camera without... <laughs> without the digital camera. Um, oh wow. Which is interesting. Um so that was a that was a really cool piece of technology. And then the ridiculous pieces of tech. Um there were sometimes the actual demos uh, required a massive leap of faith, shall we say, on the part of a re- reporter. And I remember coming into the office once and they said, "Oh, we've got this great thing for you to demo." Because um, superglue, which was sort of like this, as you know, this you know this amazing glue that um, everyone at that time was forever being taken to hospital because they glued themselves to something um, on their eyelids. You know, it was just horrendous. <laughs> you know. They said we. They brought out this thing, and it's going to mean that you just put it on your finger, and it unsticks the superglue. So basically, you're fine. But obviously, they, you know, this was not yet in you know, a, a, a product, it was a prototype. And they said, so what we want you to do is, they got a lovely idea, which was like me doing it. And, and I think this is available on YouTube. It certainly has been shared by the BBC archive stream. We want you to glue the arm onto the Venus, Venus de Milo, but get your finger stuck in the glue. And then you've got to go, ooh, bit of a problem here, never mind. You know, we've got this new stuff which is going to unstick it. Right. I cannot tell you how much of a leap of faith it was for me to actually glue myself to something on live TV. Promised that this stuff was going to unglue me. You know. Anyway, you know, I you know, I did you know, I did this. But even on, you know, when you watch the item, you can just see that moment of uncertainty as I'm rubbing my finger, <laughs> thinking, oh, am I actually going to unstick me? Oh, that's and, amazing. Yeah, yeah, you know. So there were there were lots of items. And, you know, and, and, and technology, I think one of the things, because we know we talked a lot about, you know, climate change and you know, the need to do things differently. And in various different things, you know, whether it was solar power or, you know, um, you know, wind, wind power and wave power. And I think the slowness of some of those technologies to be harnessed um, has uh, that that has that has surprised me. And we're, we're obviously we're getting there, but I, it's taken it's taken a while, hasn't it? Yeah, really? yeah, um, yeah. So th- that I think is. Um, is is one of the things which is is surprising how how long but it, but I think it's always you know I'm you know and hopefully with you know the that people will um, you know we will start looking at ways of absolutely addressing our need to get our any our need for energy met in a different way. Yeah, I, I think from it's one of the the 
I was going to say hot topics for me. That's probably an inappropriate choice of word when we're talking about environmental uh, uh, issues. But it is a it's, it's a it's a real soapbox topic for me. And we, we've just had um, a, a heat pump um, a boiler system fitted here, so we can start to extract the air. We're having solar panels uh, fitted uh, in the new year as well. But it, it, as you say, it feels as though wow, why hasn't this happened? Why isn't this a standard already? So yeah, fa- fascinating to see how some things go faster than you expect and other things just don't. I want to pick up on something you said earlier. So you mentioned Sir James uh, Dyson uh, and uh, having him on uh, uh, Tomorrow's World uh, back in the day. Recently, of course, we had the very sad news of uh, Sir Clive Sinclair's passing. Um, I can't underestimate the impact of uh, Sir Clive on computing. I think myself and many other folks listening to this show will probably be in IT because they used a Sinclair computer growing up. I saw this amazing TV piece you worked on uh, about Sir Clive from, I think it was Inside Out or Inside Out East it was, uh, uh, and just a really incredible piece. It was probably from about sort of 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. How did you find it to be involved in tech and be around these people who are, are now, you know, such almost mythical personalities as Sir Clive Sinclair and others. Yeah, no, no. Well, it just, just really, um, I, I just uh, very, very stimulating, very, very, uh, you know, exciting. And as you say, Sinclair was was really responsible for getting the the computer into the hands of people across the UK with just and and we, in a way that was far more successful than he or his team thought it would be. Because as you saw, I, I, I chatted to the, the wonderful designer behind the, um, the ZX80 um, and the ZX81. And, you know, he sort of said, you know, they, they, they produced it. The aim was let's get this priced at under 100 quid. So you could get it for, I think it was £99.99, but you could also get it for £79.99 if you bought it in kit form. Mm. And they said suddenly they would, as he put it, knee deep in checks. And they, they it was success beyond their wildest dreams. Um, and they, they changed things for, you know, a whole generation. Were, yeah, um, it's- it's incredible. I mean, where I'm sat here, we're recording this interview across uh, Zoom on video, and just to my left, I can see a Commodore 64. I can see a Sinclair Spectrum, a BBC Micro. I'm into. I'm a, a geek for the old retro technology because, but, but genuinely, it was such uh, such an exciting time. And I don't believe I would be in tech without shows like Tomorrow's World. I don't believe I would be in the IT industry without Sir Clive Sinclair and the uh, the uh, leaps and bounds that they made there. So just incredible to think that, you you know, you worked with those giants of uh, technology and got to to be up close with them and uh, and see how their brains worked. Yeah, no, it's a real, real, a real privilege to meet meet people like that. And, um, you know, people who, who did, you know, think quite differently. Um, yeah. You know, which is something that you know, you know, I often come back to with the you know the young people I'm working with is you know the we want to reward them for thinking differently and not always thinking the same. Mm. Who are the people in your life who have been the biz- biggest positive influences on you, and why? Ooh, well, and it, it doesn't it, necessarily need to be tech related. I mean, your career no. as a whole. Well, I. I it's quite interesting. So there were various people at different stages who did 
certain things. Um, rather like you, I had an amazing teacher, um, and she was a she was a French teacher, and I had consistently just failed French um, right the way up to the age of fifteen. You know, I hovered at about 42% in every single in every single exam. And she came in, she was a new teacher. And um, after a couple of months, she said, you know what, you know, you're a you're an intelligent girl. And there's no reason why you should keep failing French. So we've got mocks coming up in January. I just suggest, you know, why don't you just put a bit of effort in and um and see what you can do? And I know this sounds extraordinary, but until that point in time, I'd always been good at what I was good at, naturally good at, and very average at everything else that I wasn't interested in. So um, I did put a bit of effort in, and I got 65%. I can still remember the mark. <laughs> and then I did really well in the what were the O-levels. Um, and then I decided to do you know, French at A-level and got grade A. Wow. So she, but what she, she did something really important, you know, uh, because it wasn't I deeply loved French, but she helped me understand that there were some things you do have to make a bit more of an effort, you know, and for most people, French vocab is not going to happen by osmosis. You're going to have to put a bit of effort into learning it. And and I took that on board and, and I went from, say, just being very, very average to getting understanding how to learn. Mm. So yeah. she was really, and, and it gave me that bit of confidence in me. So she was fundamental. And then I think the other influences, I, I often talk about Rose Gill, who took the risk of giving me that job on Saturday mornings when I was a student with no zero television experience. Um, so she was amazing. And not only did she give me that opportunity, but she also gave me amazing advice, which is, you know, we want you to be yourself. You will make mistakes, but make your own mistakes. Don't make other people's. So, you know, we will be with you. We're here to guide and support you. You will. <laughs> Some things will go wrong, but we'll we're you know we're behind you and all that and she was she was wonderful she was very she was instrumental in many people's careers on and off screen at the bbc she was a wonderfully intuitive highly intelligent very brilliant woman i was incredibly lucky to work with her and then again when i worked on tomorrow's world i just had the benefit of fantastic co-presenters some wonderful producers and we had a lot of fun and we cared deeply about the programme. So all of those things became, you know, that, that, that thing where you kind of set a bit of a compass for yourself. And you also set a set of standards by which you want to work and, and um, standards for like an atmosphere of work and also a purpose. You know, I've, I've always wanted to do things with, which I felt have a purpose so there's a reason for doing it yeah um, yeah that, absolutely absolutely thank you so much for for sharing those it sounds like you've had some really wonderful positive influences in in your uh, life from an early age as well which is uh wonderful to hear and i think it goes back we were talking about my uh teacher mike fisher 
uh, earlier on. So important, isn't it, uh, for young people to have those positive influences and to let them know um, what they can be, what can, what is possible and what can be done. So, uh, yeah. We have featured a whole host of amazing women in tech on the show this season. Who are some girls or ladies in tech who we may not have heard of, but who have impressed you, Maggie? Is there anybody that you can shine a light on that we could check out? Right, well... <clears throat> Um, I always think it's slightly invidious when it's like if I start mentioning certain names, then there are <laughs> loads of people who I could and should have and, you know, ought to have mentioned. So I'm I'm going to mention a number of lists, which some of them which come out every year, which okay. I'm checking out. So the first of which is for the last goodness knows how many years, um, Computer Weekly has done this most influential women in tech list. And they have about 100 women every year on that list. And I check that list because right. there have always been names which are new to me. And, you know, because I'm really interested in, in who's... And, and they are all doing very, very different things, working in different industries, um, that different sometimes at different levels. Um, but they all share one thing, is that they're really, really cool people. So that's one list. And then there's the sort of the Northern Power women. Um, and again, that's another great um, list of influences. And, and that way, I, you know, that, that, I'm always interested in, in understanding and learning more about, um, you know, different, you know, the different roles that people do. So that, you know, because, I, well, I think... I'm trying to think, I think it was Compte here, actually, who did a, a survey once of all of their members to find out how many different job titles there were. And I'm going to get the figures wrong here, but let's say uh, um, 1,200 people responded. <laughs> there were 800 different job titles, wow. which kind of gave you an idea of how this whole area is really um, expanding. But those lists are really worth checking out because you kind of see the different areas of tech that um, women are, you know, both working in companies where they're really thriving and in enjoying their enjoying their roles. And also the kind of things that those women are doing to sort of pay it, sort of pay it forward to, mm. um, you know, younger people, more junior people to, to support them. That That's really good to understand more about. Yeah, we will include links to those lists in all of the show notes because we've talked about so much stuff here today, Maggie, and I know there's going to be people listening in the car or out for a walk. And don't worry, you don't have to remember all of this stuff. We're going to include all the details in the show notes for you to go and check out. We're approaching the end of our time together, Maggie. I'm so grateful um, for the time that you've given us today. Let me ask you this question as we, we begin to close up. What are your hopes for the future of the tech industry? I'm fundamentally uh, an optimist, and I, I think that you know the technology, um, the world of tech, particularly if we have a much more diverse um, sort of input and diverse. Hang on, I'll start that again. I'm fundamentally an optimist, so I my hopes are that technology, as it becomes increasingly diverse, is going to develop. Um, products which are for the good of everybody as opposed to the good of just a selective few because we do have a slightly bonkers situation where 
technology seems to have created massive riches for certain individuals and certain countries, but this isn't really being shared. And, and it is just so important. It's important for you know a million and one reasons that this changes and that you know we we act as you know a global nation for everybody um and, and make things better. And I do I do think that technology has a massive role to play in making that happen. But as always, it's not just the tech, it's the people behind it who really matter. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Maggie, this has been such a thrill to sit down and talk with you. You have given so generously of your uh, time uh, today and your experience. And, and again, you've been such a, an influence on me, such an influence on so many people who are watching this show. So thank you from the bottom of our heart for, for helping us to celebrate episode 100 of yeah. the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, many congratulations. <laughs> thank you very much. If anybody listening to this show wants to reach out to you to continue the conversation or want to find out more about the work that you do with Teen Tech, how can they find you online? Yeah, well, it's very easy, you know, if you go on the Teen Tech website to um, contact us. But uh, people are, I mean, more than welcome. You can, you, you can either connect with me, send me a message on LinkedIn or email me directly, maggie.philbin at teentech.com. Wonderful. And you're very active on Twitter as well. We're both cat lovers. I see pictures of, of cats at Maggie Philbin on there as well on your uh, Twitter feed. Yep. Yeah, 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 no, well, you know, a house without cats would be a very empty house indeed, wouldn't it? Agreed. You know? Agreed. Maggie, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening over the past 100 episodes of Tub Talk as well. Here's to the next 100. Maggie, perhaps we can uh, we can speak to you again, episode two hundred, and Absolutely. see what's happened in the, yeah, uh, in the time that's gone by. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Philbin, thanks for your time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. That is the end of episode one hundred. I will see you on episode one hundred and one. Thanks, everyone. Hey folks, Richard here. Thanks for listening today. I know you've got a ton of options for who you listen to nowadays, so I really appreciate your support. Do you have any feedback on this episode? Ideas for future guests? Tweet me at Tublog using the hashtag TubTalk. I respond to every tweet and really appreciate your feedback. This season of Tub Talk is brought to you by Barracuda MSP. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. There are so many ransomware attacks, governments are now classifying them as terrorism. You've seen the news, oil pipelines, universities, corporations, all paying millions of dollars. It's not just big companies that are being targeted. Small and medium-sized businesses are becoming victims too. So what are you as an MSP doing to help your clients from becoming the next statistic? Barracuda MSP is here to help ensure you and your clients are prepared and protected against the inevitable ransomware attack. One, attacks start with an innocent looking email that tricks users into revealing usernames and passwords. Barracuda MSP can train your clients on your behalf to recognize an attack and enable you to deploy anti-phishing technology. Two, secure clients' web applications. File sharing services, web forms, and e-commerce sites often have weak points hackers are looking for. If hackers get into these applications, they go after business data. Protect access to these applications so hackers can't get onto your 
your client's network. Three, backup is a must. Today's solutions make it simple and fast to protect archives and backup or restore an up-to-date copy of an entire server or an individual file. Let Barracuda MSP help you strengthen your ransomware protection plans. As a special offer for TubTalk listeners, visit barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. That's barracudamsp.com forward slash TubTalk and receive a free first month on any subscription you start with Barracuda MSP. Hey team, this is Richard again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is MSP Insights. Now, every Tuesday, I share my thoughts on the business of IT with you, the managed service community. Thousands of managed service providers already subscribe to MSP Insights. It's easy to sign up, easy to cancel. MSP Insights is basically a short email from me every Tuesday without fail with advice on growing your IT business, plus cool resources I found, discovered, or started exploring that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things and often includes articles or books I've read, tools I've discovered and events I think you'd be interested in, often sent to me by my friends and Tub Talk podcast guests. So if that sounds fun, a short tiny bite of MSP goodness every Tuesday and you'd like to try it out, just go to go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. That's go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.